two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to The Flip Side. My name is Jeff Melly. I'm the head of research at Barclays. I'm joined today by Brad Rogoff, who's the head of credit research at Barclays. Thanks for joining me, Brad. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. And look, thanks for having me when credit is yielding 2%. You know, I was worried you wouldn't want to talk to me. Yeah, yeah. you'd think it's not the most exciting asset class right now. And actually, that's what we're going to focus on is corporate bond valuations, which are quite high, close to the highest we've ever seen. In fact, after you adjust for credit ratings, which are lower, meaning worse today than has historically been the case, corporate bond prices are actually at all-time highs. That means that the yields, which is what you were talking about, the interest that an investor actually earns from owning a corporate bond are very low. And that's true both in absolute terms and relative to the yields of government debt. Not only are the yields low, but most corporate bond investors I speak to are actually pretty sanguine about valuations. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but but I think the attitude's justified. I don't believe the current prices actually are divorced from fundamentals in any meaningful way. As a result, I think the risks of a sharp decline in the corporate market, they're, they're pretty limited, particularly given our economic forecasts. Well, Brad, I disagree. At least according to the traditional guideposts we use, both low yields and all that investor confidence look hard to justify. Credit quality, ratings, liquidity, all of these are worse than average, and that should translate into higher yields. I think current prices reflect explicit and implicit support that the Federal Reserve has provided to the corporate bond market. And the latter, that implicit support in particular is underappreciated, and it could have meaningful long-term changes to the yields that large corporations pay when they borrow money. But let me start with why I think valuations are aligned with fundamentals. So the key issue is your reference to the, you know, I'm doing air quotes here, traditional guideposts. The world's changed in ways that have rightfully reduced the sensitivity of corporate bonds to, to the traditional measures of value. So, for example, we need to rethink an important fundamental measure, leverage. Leverage is the favored metric of credit analysts. It's the first thing you learn about when you become a credit analyst. So what we do is we measure the debt of a corporation relative to its profitability. Obviously, a large and highly profitable company can afford to have more debt than a small company that's losing money, say. So to account for this, we look at the ratio of the total debt of a company, and we look at that versus EBITDA. It's earnings before interest, taxes, and depreciation. Now, clearly, a higher ratio indicates more debt relative to the profitability of the company. And those ratios are currently high. So to put some numbers on it, look at investment-grade companies first. The historical average is close to two. That means companies usually have about twice as much debt as their annual earnings. Right now, that ratio is close to 2.7. High-yield companies are obviously riskier in general, meaning they have more debt. On average, historically, they would have about five times their EBITDA in debt. Right now, that ratio is closer to six times. Those are meaningful differences, and I'd expect the opposite if you just looked at where yields are. Okay, well, one obvious issue, I'm not going to debate your facts, obviously, on where those numbers are, is that earnings from many companies temporarily during the COVID pandemic declined significantly. They're now rebounding, so the backwards-looking estimates of leverage aren't really all that informative of forward-looking credit quality. 
Look, sure, earnings did fall during the pandemic, but in most industries, they really didn't decline that much. And by and large, they've now fully recovered. So at this point, I think the bigger influence on leverage is all the debt that companies have been issuing. 2020 set a record for corporate bond debt issuance, and this year will likely surpass it in certain parts of the market. And there's a reason to actually have me on the flip side, right? The amount of corporate debt just keeps growing. It keeps becoming a more relevant asset class. Um, I joke, but 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 more seriously, to, to answer, you know, kind of your response, the response to your question, I, I want you to first remember that gross issuance doesn't tell the full story when you think about whether those records actually translate into more leverage. So net issuance, the amount of debt issued less debt repaid is a better indicator. And that's not at alarming levels the same way I agree gross issuance is. So what's actually more important is the measure of profits you are using. And that was EBITDA. And that's the earnings before, emphasis added on purpose, (laughs) interest in taxes. But companies pay interest in taxes. So the money left over is what is really available to pay off debt. And that's what we care about as credit investors. Both interest and taxes are very different today than in prior times. Interest is lower because interest rates have been lower since the great financial crisis. And by this point, companies' old debt has largely matured. And most of the debt stack reflects these lower rates. Well, the change in interest rates is pretty remarkable, Brad. So put some numbers on it. In investment grade, the typical coupon on an investment grade bond right now is only 3.7%. Go back 10 years, it was 5.4%. And that is a big change in the cost associated with carrying debt. However, one of the biggest risks we see, and the subject of the prior episode of The Flip Side, is a rise in inflation. That would obviously come with higher rates, which means all this reduction in interest expense could be temporary. Companies typically refinance when their debt matures, so it takes a while for changes in interest rates to be reflected in the average interest paid. So just like it took 10 years of low rates to reduce the coupons to where they are today, it would take a a long period of higher rates to raise them, over which time companies can adjust in other ways. And one thing I might add that I think is particularly relevant here is that the average maturity of investment-grade corporates has actually never been higher at over 12 years. Now, the other big change is taxes. So the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017 passed, and that substantially reduced the corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%. Again, that means the same earnings before taxes translates to more money kept by the company, and thus more debt they can afford to carry. Now, one caveat to those numbers is that very few corporations paid the full corporate tax rate because of all the deductions that get built into the corporate tax code, like for interest, investment, et cetera. I agree. Most corporates were not paying 35% exactly prior to 2017, but they also aren't necessarily paying 21% today. And the magnitude of the drop, which is similar, is to me what matters the most. Now, obviously, we're talking about the average company when I make those statements, but it's a fair point that for some, the magnitude is not going to be as great. All right. Now, let's think, though, about the gains from the tax rate. Those could revert a lot more quickly than the gains from lower interest rates. In fact, there's talk in the Biden administration of raising the corporate tax rate to help pay for some of the ambitious spending agenda. That could change with one stroke of a pen. That's definitely a risk. But corporate taxes are likely to rise only modestly, maybe to 25%. So many of the gains will remain. So if we put this all together, 
we think that an investment grade company can handle a full extra turn of leverage. And maybe it's only 0.9 instead of a full turn if taxes increase modestly. But that, you know, you look at that versus a decade ago and you look at high yield, we think you can be 0.75 turn higher. You make those adjustments and it brings current leverage much closer to the historical averages. All right. Well, corporate bond investors also typically get paid a liquidity premium and they earn that because corporate bonds are less liquid than other fixed income instruments, notably government bonds. Now, right now, the liquidity premium in corporate bonds, which we measure in a bunch of ways, like comparing off the run to on the run bonds, for example, is extremely low. Normally, that would indicate that liquidity was strong, but actually liquidity of individual corporate bonds remains low, more or less like it's been since the global financial crisis. There's a long list of reasons for the decline in liquidity in corporate bonds, like bank reform, changing market participants, et cetera. But the net effect is pretty clear. All right, Jeff. Well, actually, I'm going to go back to your own research that you've done over the past several years. And what you've shown is that investors have developed new tools to manage liquidity. I think the best example is actually in high yield, where many mutual funds facing inflows and outflows from their investors now use high high yield ETFs. Those trade actively in the market and they manage those flows rather than relying on buying and selling of individual bonds. Well, but I'm not going to argue with the conclusions of my own research. And we have actually shown that this substitution into ETF trading is occurring to such an extent that it actually further reduces the liquidity in the single name market. Right. But it also means that investors no longer need to rely exclusively on single name liquidity. And if they don't need it, they won't demand a premium for it. So the price of liquidity can fall even if liquidity is worse. Given all the new trading strategies being deployed, I think the liquidity premiums in, in corporate bonds should be low, which you know it is now, clearly, as we've said, and it will stay there. All right, Brad, you focused on some of the typical considerations for corporate bonds. I think the overall downside for credit is being artificially capped as a result of explicit and implicit action from the Federal Reserve. And that that is more responsible than all of the typical sorts of considerations that we have. Now, the explicit support for the market is easy to see. It comes in the form of super accommodative monetary policy, low rates, and massive asset purchases by the central bank. The Fed's keeping rates at zero and buying assets like treasuries and agencies. And so investors don't have a choice. They have to buy risky assets and prices go up as a result. Now, in that sense, you could say that what's happening in corporate bonds is similar to some of the difficult to understand price action in Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies or certain meme stocks or even parts of real estate. All right. Well, I, I, I think I'm you know, pretty smart on credit, but I'm certainly not a crypto expert. But I, I do think I could say that one important difference between credit and cryptocurrencies is that bonds have a fundamental value. So that means that cash flows can be estimated and priced. And so the potential diversion from reality is much more limited. Look, I certainly agree that the extent to which an asset can be affected by quantitative easing and low rates varies greatly across assets. And maybe credit isn't being propped up as much as others. But as inflation emerges as a legitimate risk factor, these benefits to corporate bond prices could be at risk. I'd also say that it's always sort of a warning sign to me when we're forced to rethink decades-old valuation metrics just to make sense of current prices. Well, as I said earlier, we need to not worry so much about our traditional metrics. So that works for me. But on the inflation front, first, I point out that although an inflation surge is certainly a risk, 
it's not our base case scenario. And if anything, the risks have receded somewhat, if we look, say, over the past few weeks. Second, I thought I told a pretty convincing story about those old metrics. Yeah, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. But 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 I actually think that the uh, implicit support for the corporate bond market matters more than the explicit support. I want to focus on that. So recall that at the height of the COVID-induced market volatility, the U.S. Federal Reserve announced two new programs to support the corporate bond market, a primary and a secondary market facility that was able to buy both newly issued bonds or existing corporate bonds, respectively. And not coincidentally, the day that they announced those programs marked the low point for credit valuations during the pandemic. Right. And I suppose this is implicit support because those programs never ended up being utilized to any real extent. 14 billion of corporate bonds and ETFs were, were purchased versus 120 billion a month that's still being purchased in treasuries and agencies. You know, it was really just testing the pipes as opposed to actually buying assets. And the Fed just announced that it was unwinding the limited purchases that were made in credit. Yeah, because those programs were never really utilized, I think the effect of them is greatly underappreciated. I think the Fed sent a very important message to the market. When the crisis started, credit yields rose sharply. Then the Fed steps in, and that's a catalyst for yields to very quickly reverse those increases. It was almost instantaneous. And the message was, if corporate bond prices fall too much, we'll step in and buy them. Now, the downside matters a lot when you think about prices of credit or really any fixed income. These aren't stocks. So you know, it's not like the prices could just appreciate without end. The most you can get back is you know, the initial principal plus interest. And so it's really the downside considerations that's a big driver of prices. But the Federal Reserve basically eliminated any chance of a real sell-off. So not only did prices recover, but corporations were able to issue a massive amount of debt at very low yields because investors knew that there was just not that much they could lose when they bought at those prices. I mean, that sounds like a successful program to me. I mean, you're saying in the midst of the crisis, the Fed was able to convince investors that they wouldn't let the system collapse, so much so that the central bank didn't even have to put up any money? I mean, if you're the central banker, don't you love when words speak louder than actions? Yeah, except that investment-grade companies would have been able to issue debt anyway. These are the largest, most profitable companies in the world. They can raise money in virtually any environment. Now, we saw that in the global financial crisis, which was far more long-lasting in terms of the economic and market damage. At far higher yields, investment-grade companies had access to the market. They just had to properly compensate investors. Now, the Fed takes away the risk, and these same large, profitable companies can issue at very cheap levels. It's a massive value transfer from investors to corporations. Those corporations should have had to pay large sums to lock in the liquidity that they thought they needed to survive the pandemic, and instead, they had to pay what's going to go down in, in the records as the lowest yields ever. You're speaking about these facilities, though, with the benefit of hindsight. We know now that the economy wasn't going to collapse. We didn't necessarily know what was going to happen with vaccines to get us to the point we we're at today. So maybe we could have let market forces play out. You know, certainly a possibility. But we certainly didn't know that at the time. And also remember, the Fed kept their bond purchases to less than five-year bonds, that were investment grade rated before the COVID related shutdowns in an attempt to signal their main goal was to make sure high quality companies could roll over near term debt, right? Even if they could issue eventually during the height of uncertainty. You know, I'd argue that the benefits of lower rates and quantitative easing 
at least had a chance to be sufficient. These corporate facilities were different. They targeted a very specific asset class and managed to save corporations a huge amount of money with very little official outlay from the Fed, as you noted. Now, I think on top of that, these programs convinced investors that the tail risks in this asset class don't really exist. I think that's a major contributor to the cheap borrowing rates for corporates today. If anything really serious goes wrong, now there's an expectation that the Fed will step in and cap the downside. Well, tactically, maybe I'll concede you have a point there, since it will only help my argument that lower interest rates make corporates safer than they used to be. Isn't the end result the same anyway? It is, but I think that there's a difference between safety that arises organically, like from low interest rates or conservative management of balance sheets, and safety that's provided by the official sector to a specific part of the economy. Look, if I'm right, this is a pretty big distortion to markets. And I don't think that most people would suggest that the largest, most profitable companies are a particularly worthy recipient of that kind of support. Now, it also creates the possibility of even worse volatility if the expected support doesn't materialize during a period of volatility. So for example, if there is an inflation scare, then the Fed and other central banks are going to be trying to withdraw accommodation, tamp down inflation. They won't be able to give additional support to the corporate bond market, even if it's experiencing severe volatility. Well, ideally, we won't test that last prediction anytime soon, as I, for one, am still coping with trying to get out of this crisis. Well, Brad, I certainly hope you're right on that front. Now, clients of Barclays can read our latest research on how to interpret corporate leverage in Leverage Doesn't Mean What It Used To, and our latest take on central bank accommodation in our recent global outlook entitled A Grind Higher, both available on Barclays Live. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the flip side. For more insights about this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com slash IB.